0: Let's get into the teaching of God's Word today. We are in a series called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. We've been going through the seven marks of what it means to be emotionally healthy before the Lord, right? Because we're learning that spiritual maturity and emotional health are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. And so today is actually part seven. We're going to do our final mark. So we've gone through six marks. Let's see if I can remember them here see if I can do this by memory, but we talked about that we are going to embrace vulnerability and weakness, that we're going to be honest and transparent with one another and recognize that we are broken human beings and that in our weakness, we find the strength of God. We've learned that as emotionally healthy disciples, we are going to follow the crucified Jesus, not the Americanized Jesus. Right? Not this cheap version of Jesus that says everything is easy and everything's going to go our way. No, we're going to follow the crucified Jesus, and we're going to follow him right to the cross, and we're going to experience the pain and the suffering of being followers of Jesus. Right? We've also learned that we're going to break the power of the past. Right? Jesus makes all things new, but we have to be willing to go back in order to go forward to deal with those things in our past we've learned that we're going to find the treasures that are buried in grief and loss. We're not going to ignore our pain. We're not going to pretend our pain doesn't exist. We're going to discover that God hid treasures in the midst of our grief for us to find. We also learned that we're going to live by the rhythm of be before you do. We're going to be with God before we do anything for God. And we're going to live that rhythm daily and weekly. We also learned that we are going to use the measure of love for spiritual maturity. We're not defining spiritual maturity by how long we've gone to church, how many Bible studies we've done, how often we pray. No, we're going to define spiritual maturity by how well we love others. Because we know that what does God expect from us? To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. There we go. I did it. That was six. Today is number seven. Woo! Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Today is number seven, and that is that we are going to embrace God's gift of limits. We're going to embrace God's gift of limits. So let's take a look at our notes here to see our big picture point. You can find the notes inside your bulletin. They're also on our church app. They're attached to this video on our website, and they're also attached to this audio podcast if you're listening to the audio. Our big picture point today is this, a theological and practical understanding of limits is critical to our ability to love God, ourselves, and others over the long haul. We've got to have a theological understanding and a practical understanding that God has put limits on our lives. And if we live outside of those limits, we can do that for a while. We can push ourselves pretty hard for a while. But we don't want to just burn out. We want to be in this thing for the long haul, right? Those who endure to the end. And to do that, we have to understand the limits that God has put upon our lives. And when we live within those limits is when we experience the grace of God, the supernatural power of God, and we fulfill who we were meant to be. And so that's going to be our goal today is we're going to look at this theologically. We're going to look at this practically so that we can have this understanding of limits. Now, because it is graduation weekend here, there is a cliche that you really can't get through a high school graduation without hearing this cliche at least once in one of the speeches, whether it's the keynote speech or the class president speech or the valedictorian speech, or sometimes you hear it multiple times, but it usually sounds something like this, hey guys, the future's right in front of you. You can do anything you put your mind to. That sounds great, and it makes for a wonderful speech, but it's false. You cannot do anything you put your mind to. All right, so this is the anti-graduation speech I'm giving right now, okay? You cannot, but here's what you can do. You can do anything that God has apportioned to you through faith. That's what you can do. But God has given us gifts, but he has placed limits around those gifts. And we are to flourish within those limits, right? Listen, I am not a a great swimmer. I always joke around that I have all the qualities of a brick in the water. But, I mean, I can swim well enough that I can surf and I can not die in the ocean. But I am not a great swimmer. All right, so I could put my mind to it and say, you know what? I'm going to be a better swimmer. I'm going to work hard at this. Maybe I'll get some coaching. I'm going to exercise and work out. And I'm going to become a better swimmer. And I could put my mind to it. And I could put all sorts of effort into it. And I will get a little bit better, right? I could swim a little bit faster, maybe a little bit longer. But I will never swim at a competitive speed. I'm not going to make the Olympics. I'm not going to win a local event. I'm not, I'm not going to do any of that because there are limits that God placed on me, right? And so, yes, we want to have faith. Yes, we want to go after big things, but we want to go after the big things that God apportioned just for us. We can't just go do anything we want to do. All right, now that I'm done preaching bad news, let's let's get into some good news here. Let's talk about having a theology of limits. We're going to look at Four different people in the Bible that, that lay out this theology of limits for us. And we're going to go all the way back to the beginning to start with Adam and Eve. When God created Adam, the very first thing that God did when he created Adam is he put limits on him. Right. If, 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 you, if you read it chronologically, before God ever uh, told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, thank you, Jesus. Before God ever told Adam and Eve to take dominion over the earth and subdue it, to be good stewards and to keep it, he said this in Genesis 2:16 and 17. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. So the very first thing that God does when he creates man is he puts a limit on him. You can have anything you want. The entire garden is yours except for this one thing. This is a limit. So in chapter 3, when the devil, the serpent, comes along, what's the first thing the devil does? Is he tries to get humans to violate that limit. Genesis 3 verses 4 and 5, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So the very first temptation that the devil brings to mankind is that God's limits are there because God is holding out on you. There is something good for you beyond the limit and God doesn't want you to have it. And Adam and Eve fell for that lie. And violating the limits that God had set was the very beginning of sin, as they ate from the very tree that God said they could not. And listen, the devil is using the same lie on us today. The devil is trying to tell us that God's limits on our lives are because God is holding out on us, because there's something better on the other side of the limit And we continue to fall for the same lie today. Right? God put a limit on sexuality. God said sex is a wonderful thing between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. And so what does the world try to do? Violate that limit. Because the world believes a lie that something better is on the other side of it. Right? God set a limit. He said, listen, I want you to work really hard for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to practice Sabbath delights. That is a limit that God put on us. We believe that God's holding out on us, so we work hard for seven days because we don't need a limit. Are you guys following me here? God did not put a limit on Adam and Eve because he was holding out on them. God put a limit on them because he wanted what was best for them. And we find God's best in the midst of our limits. Let's fast forward to John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist had a great ministry. He was the forerunner of Jesus, right? His ministry was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, and so after communing with God in the desert for many years, he comes out of the desert. He's a bit of a strange dude, but he's got a powerful message, and he preaches this powerful message, and large crowds start gathering to him at the Jordan River, and he's baptizing people, and he's rebuking the the, the religious people, and and, and people are, are flocking to him until ultimately he has the opportunity to baptize Jesus himself. But once he baptizes Jesus and Jesus begins his ministry, in John chapter 3, it says that the crowds begin to go to Jesus instead. And Jesus and his disciples were in one place baptizing and that John the Baptist was still in Anon. He was still baptizing people, but not very many. And it says that his disciples came to him and said, John. Everybody's gone to Jesus. The crowds are gone. And listen to John's response in John three twenty-seven. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist had a powerful understanding of limits. He said, "Nothing. I have nothing unless heaven has given it to me. So he said, listen, when I had a huge ministry, it's because heaven gave it to me. And now that I have a small ministry, I'm okay with that because I must decrease so that Jesus can increase. Listen, if John had gotten addicted to having a big ministry, right, if if John had had fallen for the adoration of the crowds and had enjoyed the notoriety that he received, he could have continued to fight for his ministry and for his name. And if he had done that, all he would have done is created confusion and conflict within the kingdom of God. But he was willing to say, I only have what's been given to me from heaven. God gave me a big ministry for a while. Now he's given me a small ministry. And little did John know that a few days later, God would give him a prison ministry as he was thrown into prison. John had this understanding of limits. But when we fight against the limits that God has put upon us and we fight for something we weren't meant to have, we can also create confusion and conflict in the kingdom of God. Let's look at Jesus himself. This is powerful in Mark chapter 1. Jesus first goes to Capernaum, a place that he kind of made a a base out of in terms of his traveling ministry. But the first time he goes to Capernaum, he goes into the synagogue and and is preaching in the synagogue. And first off, the people are already amazed because Jesus is preaching with an authority that they have never heard before. None of the scribes or the rabbis had the authority that Jesus preached with. Then there was a demon-possessed man who rose up in the midst of the synagogue and Jesus cast the demon out of him. Now people are, are Are really intrigued. And it says that that day, everyone in the region began to hear about Jesus. think about that, right? There's no local news, there's no newspaper, there's no television station, there's no Facebook, there's no Instagram, right? But somehow that very day, the entire region began to hear about this Jesus, which means people were just going out and telling everybody, there was this guy in the synagogue today and he did and said things we've never seen before. And so it says that they went to Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law was sick and so Jesus heals her. She rises up and begins to serve them and and then we get to the evening here where we're gonna pick it up in verse 32 where it says, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed and the whole city had gathered at the door." And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. All right, so now we've got revival breaking out. The entire city shows up. And Jesus is healing and casting out demons. And, and, and the crowd keeps getting bigger and bigger. But then it says in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Right? This is that be-do rhythm that we were talking about. Jesus didn't want to just do for God. He wanted to go and be alone with God. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of sick people and demon-possessed people and needy people, and they all want you, Jesus. And look at what Jesus says. Let's go somewhere else. Let's go somewhere else. There's other towns nearby. I came to preach for them also. Think about this. There was a huge crowd of sick people, a huge crowd of people full of faith, ready to receive a miracle from Jesus. And you know what Jesus said to them? He said, no. So listen, if you ever hear a faith preacher preaching that Jesus will always heal you if you have faith, Jesus will always say yes if you ask, I'm going to rebuke that because here was a crowd full of people who had all kinds of faith and all kinds of needs, and Jesus said no. What do we learn from this? Just because there's a need does not mean that it's your responsibility. Jesus said, listen, I understand there's people here with needs, but I've been called to other towns also. I've been called to a greater purpose than just healing these people. Just because there's a need doesn't mean it's you, your responsibility. Jesus said no. Let me encourage you today, the word no is one of the most powerful tools that you have to live within God's limits. Because we are surrounded by needs every day. But just because there's a need doesn't mean that it's our responsibility to drop everything to meet that need. We have to discern what is it that we've been called to do. What needs have we been called to meet? Jesus said no. Come on, this has been messing me up ever since I started studying this, and I just pray that it gets in your spirit and messes you up too. Jesus said no to a city full of people with faith. How about Paul? Let's take a look at Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In this particular passage, Paul is answering. What was happening in Corinth is that other apostles, after Paul had planted the church and built up the church and then Paul had left, other people who were claiming to be apostles had showed up and said, hey, we have more authority than Paul. Uh, We have more authority to preach. We have more authority to speak and to lead this church. And so the church wrote to Paul questioning his authority. And this was his answer to the question of the authority that he had over the church of Corinth. And starting in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 10, Paul wrote this, But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ." not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. So what was Paul saying? Paul was saying we will confine ourselves to the limits God has given us. He says, we will not overextend ourselves. We will not operate in somebody else's sphere. We are going to operate within the sphere that God has apportioned to us. And, of course, we're reading from the New American Standard, which uses the words measure and sphere. If you were to read the same passage in the New Living Translation, it would use the word boundaries. If you were to read the same passage in the NIV, it would use the word limits. We will not go beyond our limits. Paul was a powerful apostle. He had a great ministry. He planted many churches, but even Paul operated within the confines of the limits God had put on him. He wanted to go to some cities, and God said, no, I forbid you to go to that city. I want you to go to this city instead. And within those limits, Paul experienced the power and the authority of his ministry. We can't do anything we want, but if we will operate within the sphere that God has given us, we will experience the supernatural power of God in the ministry that we've been created for, amen? So let's look at God's gift of limits on our lives and and how this applies to us practically. First off is this, limits protect us. Limits protect us. When God put a limit on Adam and Eve, it was to protect them. And when they violated that limit, they fell outside of God's protection and ultimately had to live outside the garden that was created for them. Limits protect us. When we live within God's limits... We won't find ourselves in places where we're going to fall into sin. When we operate within God's limits, it's going to protect us from getting enmeshed into dangerous relationships. When we live within God's limits, it's going to protect us from overworking ourselves, from burning ourselves out. When we get outside of God's limits, we operate in our own flesh. And when we operate in our own flesh, it's pretty much guaranteed that we're eventually going to fall. And so when we operate within God's limits, he protects us. Now, that doesn't mean that he protects us from getting hurt. A lot of people have gotten hurt, even tortured, even murdered for serving Jesus. When I say God protects us, that doesn't mean that he protects us from facing all kinds of difficulties. No. Difficulties is a part of following Jesus. What do limits protect us from? From ourselves. When we live within God's limits, he protects us from ourselves. So that our ministry is not disqualified and the work that he has called us to do is not ruined. Limits protect us. The second thing is this limits are seasonal. Limits are seasonal. There are certain seasons of your life where you're going to be under certain limits, whether it be because of of having young kids at home or a job that you have for a certain season of life or a physical ailment that affects you for a certain season of life. Limits are seasonal. They will change. There was about a three or four year period where I coached high school football. And let me tell you, I love coaching high school football. I loved the camaraderie. I loved the the teamwork. I loved pouring into young men and mentoring young men. I loved the competition and the the Friday night lights. I loved all of it. The last year that I coached high school football was actually the year that that Rachel was born. And so Andrew was like two and a half. Rachel was a newborn. and, And Shannon was suffering horribly from postpartum depression. She was just in a fog that she could not get herself out of. And where was I? I was gone every day at football practice. And when that season ended, and by the time the season ended, Rachel was probably four months old, I resigned from coaching football because it was clear that that was not within God's limits for me. I needed to go home and raise my own kids and take care of my wife. But that was a seasonal limit. Now, when Andrew got older, I had the opportunity to coach him all through Little League Baseball, which was a huge blessing. And who knows, maybe I'll coach high school football again because I still love it. But for that season of my life, I had to embrace God's limits upon me and do what was most important, not what I wanted to do. Limits are seasonal. What season of life are you in? And what limits has that put on your life right now? Embrace those limits. Don't try to get past them. They're there to protect you. They're there to give you direction, to remind you of what's most important right now. Limits remind us of our humanity. Limits remind us of our humanity. If we go back to John the Baptist in John chapter 3, what did he say? I am not the Christ. Right? He said it. I am not the Christ. I think maybe we need to say it sometimes too. I am not God. Right? Limits remind us of our humanity. We are not God. We are broken, fallen human beings with many needs. And God will use those limits upon our lives to humble us, to break our will to remind us of our proper standing before him. When we live within limits, we understand our humanity and we understand the goodness of God at work in our lives. Amen? Limits remind us of our humanity. This one is huge. Limits allow others to grow and flourish. Limits allow others to grow and to flourish. Think about King David. King David wanted to build a temple for God. He got to a point where he had been so successful in his military campaigns that the, the kingdom was, was large and it was powerful and they had plenty of wealth and David had just built a palace for himself and David said, I'm living in this beautiful palace, but the presence of God is still inside of a tent. I need to build a beautiful place for God as well. And so David goes to, to Nathan, his prophet, and, and Nathan the prophet says, go do what's in your hearts, But then when Nathan the prophet goes before the Lord, the Lord says, no, I have a different word over David. In 2 Samuel 7 and verse 5, it says this. This is God talking to the prophet. Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? You know, God is saying to David, yes, that's a great idea that you have, that you want to build me a temple. But are you the one to do it? And then a few verses later in verse 12, God says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who is Solomon, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Right so what God is saying through the prophet to David is he's saying listen You're not the one who's supposed to build my temple. Solomon is. And building my temple is going to be a key part of Solomon's experience with me. And as he builds it, it's going to do something within him. And I'm going to be a father to him. And he's going to be a son to me. If David had violated God's limits and said, no, I have the authority. I have the wealth. I have the resources. I want to build your temple. He would have gotten in the way Of God working in the life of Solomon. See, when we violate our limits and do things that God did not intend for us to do, we interfere with His work in other people's lives and we stunt their growth. When we're living outside of our limits, that means that we're doing too much for other people. And when we do too much for other people, we stunt their growth. Or we cause them to depend on us instead of depending on God. Or we get in the way of God wanting to perform a miracle through somebody else because we want to do it ourselves. It's quiet in here. I'm just going to pretend that you're saying amen. Hallelujah. All right, this must be good preaching, man. It's hitting somebody close to home. When we violate our limits, we get in the way of God working in other people's lives. Sometimes setting limits with people is the most loving thing we can do for them. Sometimes telling somebody, no, I'm not going to meet your need, is the most loving thing we can do for them because we're getting out of the way so that God can meet their need. Thank you, Jesus. Last one. Limits set us free to live our God-given design. Limits set us free to live our God-given design. Listen, John 17, 4, this is Jesus speaking. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. Look at Acts chapter 13. This is Paul preaching about John the Baptist. And while John was completing his course... There was a course just set out for John the Baptist. And Paul said while John was completing his course. And then let's look at Acts chapter 20. This is Paul preaching about his own life. One more slide. There we go. Paul says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Right? What are we seeing here? Jesus accomplished what he was meant to do. John the Baptist completed his course. Paul completed his course. We all have a God-given design. Ephesians 2.10, there are good works that were created just for you to accomplish. And when we live within God's limits for our lives, we are free to live out our God-given design. So that each one of us can say, I have accomplished my course. I'm not running your race and you're not running my race. But together we can each discover our own course and live it out. Those last blanks in your notes, I want you to fill in these three numbers 80, 15, 5. 80, 15, 5. The 80-15-5 principle was actually established in 1988. And for all my elementary school teachers here today, it was actually research done in the elementary classroom. The 80-15-5 principle said this, that in any given elementary classroom, about 80% of the students will be well-behaved and motivated to learn. Go ahead and go back a slide. Um, Will be well-behaved and motivated to learn. In any given classroom, about 15% of the students will be squirrely and will need extra encouragement to stay motivated to learn. And that in any given classroom, 5% of the students are going to be chronic rule breakers and they're going to need social emotional contracts and special discipline programs to help them be successful, right? That was the 80-15-5 principle. Now, that principle has been applied to many other industries throughout the years, but I want to give you one more application of it in your life. The 80 5 principle says this. 80% of what you do can be done by most any able-bodied person. I know this just completely ruins the whole, you know, you're unique and special. and 80% of what you do can be done by any able-bodied person. Right? You do the dishes, you drive the kids to school, you mow the lawn, the basic tasks you do at work. 80% of what you do could probably be done by anybody. 15% of what you do can be done by most people with a moderate amount of school or training. So if somebody was trained on whatever computer software you do, or if somebody takes the same college classes that you take, 15% of what you do can be done by most people if they get the right amount of schooling or training. But 5% of what you do is what God created only for you in all of history. 5% is your Ephesians 2.10 the good works which he planned for you long ago that you might fulfill them. So when we do our 5%, God reveals his glory through us in a way that he has not revealed it through any other person in human history. So what does that mean? That means when we are making decisions about our limits, we should make them with the 5% in mind. Is this going to free me up to live out my 5%? Or is this going to bog me down so that I miss my 5%? Is this an obstacle that I'm supposed to overcome by faith? Or is this a limit I'm supposed to embrace so that I can experience God's design for my life? Every decision we make should point us towards our 5%. So that we are free to live out the purpose that God created only for us. Only for us. I want to finish with a story today to just maybe try to help illustrate this. I want to tell you the parable of a man who after doing much research and soul searching and prayer uh, really discovered what the passion of his heart was. And a door was opened, an opportunity came to him to be able to live this thing out and live out this dream that God had put upon his heart. But in order to take advantage of this opportunity, the door would only be open for a very short time. And he had to go on a long journey to get to the place where he needed to be. So this man set out upon his long journey. And as he was on his journey, he came to this bridge, and this bridge was high over this rushing river, this really scary-looking rapids and fast-moving water. And he begins walking over the bridge, and as he begins walking over the bridge, he sees on the other side of the bridge is a man walking towards him. And he's intrigued by the man because the man is carrying a large rope that is wrapped around him. And as they begin to pass each other on the bridge, the man says, Here, will you hang on to the end of my rope? And the guy didn't even think about it. He just instinctively grabbed the rope because that's what you do when somebody hands you a rope. And this stranger says to him, Now, hang on tight. Both hands, mind you. And then this man, for no explicable reason, climbed up on the edge of the bridge and jumped off the bridge And now this man is left at the top of the bridge holding a rope as a man swings over a dangerous river below. And the man says, what are you doing? Why would you jump? And the stranger hanging down there says, just hold on. Remember, two hands. If you let go, I will die. And the man's holding the rope, and he's like, why are you doing this? What's happening right now? And the stranger just keeps saying, if you let go, I'm lost. You just hang on. And now the man's beginning to panic. He he wants to pull the stranger up, but the stranger's too heavy. He can barely hold on to the rope. He's looking around on the bridge. Maybe there's something I can tie the rope off to. But the side of the bridge is solid. There's nothing that he can wrap the rope around. There's nobody else walking on the path, so there's nobody to help him pull the man up. So he's stuck just standing there. And he keeps saying, why are you doing this? And the man, the stranger keeps saying, just hold on. You're responsible for my life. Finally, the man gets an idea. He says, I've got an idea. He says, I'm not strong enough to pull you up, but I can act as a counterweight And you can climb up the rope. And you can get back up here. And the stranger down below said, no, that's okay. I'm not interested in climbing. The man says, what do you mean? You're not going to climb back up. And the stranger says, no, just hold on. If you let go, I'll die. And now the man's in a panic. He can't stay here on the bridge all day. He's only got a very short opportunity of time to go live out the dream that God put upon his heart. And now he's stuck with an impossible choice. Either I let this man die or I miss out on the very thing God intended for my life. And finally, he has a moment of revelation and he calls out to the stranger who's hanging down below. And he says, You know what? I have decided I am not responsible for your choice. I will stand here and I will be a counterweight for you to climb up this rope and get back on this bridge. But you have to choose. And the stranger says, I'm not interested in climbing. But you have to hang on. And so finally the man said, You know what? I accept your choice. And he let go of the rope, and the stranger plummeted to his death." It's a difficult story, but listen. People are going to hand you ropes all the time. Life is going to hand you ropes. Circumstances are going to hand you ropes, and every one of us must decide. Am I going to spend my life holding other people's ropes? Or am I going to live the life God intended me to live? And letting go of ropes is a very shocking and a very painful thing. But remember, just because there's a need doesn't mean it's our responsibility. And it's not our responsibility to live other people's lives for them. Our responsibility is to live within the limits that God set for our life. If other people don't understand limits, they will always violate yours. And so we can't live at the mercy of other people violating our limits. We've got to live within who God called us to be to fulfill his design for our lives. And that means we've got to let go of some ropes so that we can find our 5%. Amen? Will you stand with me today? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, this is a hard word. Many of us struggle with the word no. We feel such a deep sense of responsibility to others. Culture tries to dictate to us that we have to do certain things. So, Father, I just pray that we would have the courage to receive this word that we would have the courage to receive this word. God, I pray that in these next few moments as we worship you, I ask, Lord, that you would bring a spirit of revelation to us. God, would you give us a vision of our 5%. You might not give it all to us, Lord, but just be a light unto our feet. God, just give us a taste of what our five percent is that lord we might have the god-given wisdom to make decisions to live within your limits so that we can experience our five percent god give us the courage to let go of ropes we were never meant to hold on to jesus cause us to get out of the way that we've been in some people's lives And free us up, Lord, to be everything you created us to be. God, we want to live in the supernatural. We want to live in the authority of God. We want to see fruit in our lives that we could never produce ourselves. So to do it, Lord, we commit not to running harder. We commit to simply running our course. Show us our course, Lord that we might run it. Let us not be jealous of other people's courses. Let us not feel the pressure of other people's expectations. But, Lord, set us free to run the course you have marked out for us. God, would you minister to this deep within our hearts. Let this be transformative in our lives. God, bring us this revelation. We ask in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Come on, as we worship, just open yourself up to the Spirit today and let Him give you that revelation. What does your 5% look like? Thank you, Jesus.